Welcome to City Life. It's uh, good to be here. Our natural spotlight is back with the time change. I feel lit up by the heavens themselves. But uh, it's, it's also good to have Chris House in the house, uh, our creative arts director in here leading us in worship. So, I mean, worship was phenomenal. We're going to go back in at the back end, so I'm not even going to preach that long. But uh, also good to see uh, we've been giving these out, these $10 gift cards and these love mugs, because we're in a series on love. And, and, and somebody that was good to see tonight is Michael Finley. He's back from three months away. What's scary is how fast three months flew by. I did a double take, because it's almost like, I don't expect you yet, but he's back. So consider that a welcome back gift, and uh, it's good to see him. But uh, I want to, as we continue in this series, it's called God's Love Language, and pictures worth a thousand words, these images of God's love that he gives us to better understand his love. And as we go into God's word tonight, we're going to be in John chapter 15. So if you've got your Bible, the Bible app, or you pull a Bible out from the pew underneath you, we're going to be in John chapter 15 tonight as I get set up. But we're in this series, and essentially what it's doing is it's carrying us from Valentine's Day our culture's celebration of love, all the way through Easter, which is God's perfect demonstration of love through Jesus Christ. And what kind of sparked this whole series for me is this this quote by Billy Graham uh, that I read a few months ago where he says, God loves you, and he loves you with a love that you don't know anything about because there's no human love comparable to divine love. And I was even just reflecting on that as we were worshiping tonight, and we were singing, uh, what is it, God of Miracles, where it says, we need your supernatural love. Like, there's a natural love, and then there's a supernatural love that is that it's God's love. And it transcends anything that we can comprehend, because we think about it, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. It's one of the first verses most people memorize, because it's so easy, right? God is love. And uh, we understand that God loves us, but if God's higher His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And God is love. Man, maybe that's why we struggle to love well, both God and people in this life, because sometimes it's it's just bigger than us. But I love that God in his grace, as we've been talking about in this series, he doesn't leave it transcendent. He gives us pictures in scripture, metaphors, images of his love. And, And Aristotle, it was Aristotle that says the soul does not think without a picture. And, of course, he said this before we understood much about our brains, but he didn't miss the mark by that much. We remember using pictures. We think using pictures. We learn better. Most people learn better with pictures and images. Said some 70% of the population is visual learners. Scientists say that about 90% of what's stored up here is pictures and, and images in our minds. But in this series, I do want to look at these six images. Six specifically that God gives us to better understand his love. And those images are the potter and the clay, the sheep and the shepherd, the the slave and the master, the child and their father, friends, and then the husband and the wife. And if we review the clay and the potter was this idea that God created us, it says in Genesis, in his image. And as much as sin vandalized that, in his love, he calls us to conform back into his image, specifically the image of Jesus Christ, as it says in Romans 8, 29. And then the sheep and the shepherd, it speaks to this idea that God's love, it both leads us lovingly and it pursues us persistently because as sheep, we're prone to wander as we journey through this life. But we have a gracious, loving God that pursues us. And then this idea of servant and the master, that our love... It leads to serving. It leads to sacrifice. This idea that love leads to a cross. As we see in Philippians 2 with Jesus, so it is with us. And then the son and the father. We talked about last week from this parable of of the prodigal son. And really, as we talked about the prodigal sons, the two lost sons, 
That God's love, he created us to belong in relationship with him. And sin broke it, but through Christ, he's graciously and lovingly waiting for us to come back. But tonight, I want to look at this image of friendship. And I do want to turn to John chapter 15, and we'll be in verses 11 through 15. John chapter 15, starting in verse 11, where Jesus says that I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other the same way I have loved you. It's one thing for him to say, love each other as you love yourself. As Jesus loves us, that's an even higher bar. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. So again, I want to look at this image of friendship tonight, but even before we get into that, we got to look at the word friend. Because over the years, it's kind of become distorted and convoluted and watered down. There's an old group, and maybe only a couple of you will know of the group Houdini, that has an old song, Friends. It says, how many of us have them? Ones we can't depend on. And the first lines of the song are, friends is a word we use every day, but most of the time we use it in the wrong way. And some of you right now are like, is he going to go through an entire song, lyric by lyric, that I have no idea what it is? No. So maybe Houdini is not your cup of tea, but Proverbs 18.24 says, that the man of too many friends, chosen indiscriminately, will be broken in pieces and come to ruin. But there is a true loving friend who is reliable and sticks closer to a brother. So what Solomon is saying in Proverbs is there are some quote-unquote friends that will do you more harm than good because they're fraudulent friends. But there are also faithful friends who will stick closer than a brother. So we might call this person friend and that person friend, but there are true loving friends who are reliable and stick closer than a brother. And I want to look tonight at the relationship Jesus had with a friend, John. And John is the author of the gospel that we just quoted from. And he had a relationship with Jesus Christ that was like that of of brothers. You know, Jesus saw crowds of thousands. He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He had crowds of thousands. He had crowds of hundreds. We also know he chose his 12, his 12 disciples, his 12 followers. And even within that, he had his his core group, Peter, James, and John, the three, were kind of like his core. But then even amongst that group, John goes down in history as the disciple whom Jesus loved, this beloved disciple. Tonight I want to look at their friendship and how that friendship defined who John was and then what it teaches us about our friendships, both with God and with Jesus and with others within the church. But again, first we have to consider the whole concept and idea of friend and its meaning. And to do that, I want to look at at one of the epistles that John would write to the church. He wrote three towards the end of uh, the Bible until the end of your New Testament. First John is the one we quote most often, but second and third John, they're, they're epistles he wrote to individuals, and they both end in a similar way. He says in second John chapter one, verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink, for I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face, then our joy will be complete. You know, I read that, and I think how fun it is to speculate. Like, what would Jesus have done with social media, with the Internet? What could he have accomplished if he had, like, a live stream when he's doing the Sermon on the Mount? What would the Apostle Paul have done if he had Facebook and social media, and and they could have had blogs and done all this kind of stuff? Would they have jumped all the way in and and done it as much as possible, or would they lean towards, nah, maybe I'll do it a little bit, but I want face-to-face, you know, as, as much as possible as well? And we kind of get a loose answer here. John basically says, I don't want to use modern technology too much, 
Because modern technology in that day was ink and paper and sending it through messengers and delivered in that way. But he says, I'd rather come to be with you face to face and heart to heart. Flesh and blood, not paper and ink. Meaningful interaction that leads to more meaningful investment. You know, a couple thousand years, really, after John's life, the world is introduced and was introduced to this idea of Facebook friends. And I say the world because it really is most of the world. Last year, Facebook, uh, I think it eclipsed 2 billion people that are on Facebook. 2 billion. It's a pretty big chunk of the world. It's a massive community. But if we take a closer look, the community is deficient. Each person on average has about 400 friends. They've done polls of people on Facebook, and they ask them questions. And uh, most people on Facebook, though, with 400 friends, would say that they have two close friends. It's really not that bad, right? Jesus had three, and he was perfect. So do the math. We're not perfect. We might have two. <laughs> two close friends. But then 25% of people that are on Facebook and have 400 friends or more or less, whatever, say, I don't have any close friends, true friends that stick closer than a brother. And I don't say this to diss the site Facebook at all, but it does display the tendencies of our hearts in this day and age. And this convoluted meaning sometimes of the word friend. Like to say Facebook friend is to the word friendship like I love pizza is to the word love. We just realize it's nothing wrong with saying it, but love is truly deeper than that and friendship goes deeper than that. And I love that what prefaced Jesus' words on friendship is John, in John 15 is their, his wish that their joy would overflow. Now, what was the fruit for, for John coming in face-to-face friendship with those people he was writing to? It was that their joy would be complete. We see that the fruit of friendship is joy. What we so often are missing is this joy of true friendship, knowing somebody and being known, and that whole equation being covered in grace and love and just genuine care for one another. And maybe you're thinking, man, some of my face-to-face interactions I would not define by joy. <laughs> some of them are awkward. Some of them are discouraging. Some of them are, are, are uncomfortable, right? Sometimes there's friction involved in our face-to-face, heart-to-heart interactions. Even with those that we love, sometimes there's friction. And all the married people said amen. <laughs> I don't know who that was back there. That was hopefully your spouse isn't sitting next to you. But, uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. The screens of our monitors and our phones, they're so smooth. There's no friction there. So instead of the hard work and the friction of friendship, we edit, we crop, we filter, we forfeit deeper friendship. What we forfeit and what we sacrifice is transformation for affirmation and for likes. Because like a sculpture, transformation, it takes friction. It takes friction. The kind that we can't find on our phones and their smooth surfaces. Again, we love to quote the proverb, iron sharpens iron, especially with men's ministry. But that takes the kind of impact and sharpening and friction that's not found screen to screen or monitor to monitor. Genuine friendship, it takes hard work. Genuine friendship takes work, and it leads to friction, and that friction sparks change, and that change eventually will, will, will cause transformation. And I love that when you look at the friends of Jesus, or you just look at Jesus' life, one of the phrases that has always stuck out to me and I love to study is this idea that he was a friend of sinners. He was called a friend of sinners, and what's interesting is that people called him that as a, a low-key insult that was supposed to shock you, that was supposed to be a, a, a mark against his character. But if you think about it, like Jesus, if he wanted to be a friend of righteous and righteous people alone, he never would have come to earth because the population of earth is 100% sinners, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This isn't a knock on Jesus, kind of just boomerang back on the Pharisees because all it did was comment on their own self-righteousness. 
But it was shocking on the surface in that culture that Jesus would engage with, as we talked about last week in Luke 15, when he's telling these parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. He's talking to tax collectors. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to prostitutes. He's talking to those that are sick and unclean. And this was the circle that he found himself in again and again. And in that culture, though, in that religious system, when you touched something or came into contact with something that was deemed unclean, like somebody with leprosy or somebody that was sick, it was like transformation, and it was transferred to you that you became unclean. And what was interesting, too, that I learned this week, it was also thought in just in that culture and in their superstitions that sin would lead to misfortune, and if you hung out with a sinner, their misfortune was likely to come on you. It's kind of like evil was a contagious disease caught by osmosis and contact rather than conscious choice. And that kind of thinking leads to scaredy cat Christianity. But what was so powerful is that, again, being unclean, you were basically quarantined and kept from the presence of God. But when you see God's presence in the flesh, right, Jesus Christ, he came towards those that were unclean. He flipped the script. He reversed the process, and when he touched those things that were unclean, they became clean. Jesus didn't become defiled. He healed those things that were defiled by sin and broken by sin. Transformation was flipped, and it was pushed in the opposite direction. And Jesus healed and transformed in miraculous ways, both through healings and dramatic conversions. We see that Jesus was a friend of sinners, and that's good news for us. (laughs) Every single person in here, we should all be saying amen, because the reality is When a sinner or or you becomes a friend and follower of Christ, you're gradually transformed. Because friendship, it forms us and it transforms us, both with people and with Christ. For people, it's for better or worse. But with Christ, it's always for better because we grow more and more like him. But you know what's crazy to me? I don't know if you saw this. I think I saw it randomly. I don't even know where I saw it. But there was an astronaut, Scott Kelly, who went into space for a year. He has an identical twin here on Earth. So he went out to space for a year. His identical twin was here on Earth. And as you could imagine, they grew apart. You spend a year apart from somebody, maybe, you know, relationally and emotionally, you'll grow apart. But that's not what I'm talking about. They grew apart genetically. This is some freaky-deaky stuff. This guy came back, and 7% of his genetic code had changed. That's what I said. What? (laughs) Like, I've watched X-Files, like, too many episodes. Like, are we sure it's him? Like, has something possessed him where he's 7%? Like, what on earth? How do you come back and your genetic code is 7% changed to the point where he's no longer identical twins with his brother? Like, they're not considered identical twins anymore because his genetic code changed that much. That's from a year in space. We're about to send people to Mars. I don't know how long they're going to be gone, but they might come back like the blue people from Avatar. How much of their DNA is going to change when they're gone for, like, five years, six years? I'm just saying. Space freaks me out. I've shared that before, but that blew my mind. So I share that to share that. But our spiritual transformation, it's kind of like that. Might not happen 100%. Might be 1%, 2%, 7%. But rather than looking less identical, we're called to be transformed and look more like Christ, look more like his twin, look more like Jesus Christ himself gradually. You know, Jesus stepped into human history. And he chooses his close friends as he begins his ministry. And we might, we'll call them disciples. We call them apostles. And it's fitting that after spending their life in this transformative friendship or years with this friendship with Jesus Christ and being transformed, that in the early churches they were called, like in Antioch, they were called Christians, little Christs, 
Because they'd spent time, these apostles, and they went out to make more disciples that would, like them, look like little Christs. That's what the word Christian means. But to the disciples like John and to the rest of the disciples Jesus called, he said, hey, come follow me. And we had to realize they left their livelihoods. They left their businesses. They left everything to follow him. This wasn't Jesus is my homeboy. This wasn't some kind of Facebook friendship with a loose affiliation. This was, no, I'm investing everything to follow Jesus Christ as his disciple and over time as his friend. But you, you guys know the stories, right? Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. Thomas doubts him. They all fall away when he's arrested, but the one disciple we see again and again during the Passion Week and the crucifixion is John. He proves most faithful. He was there at the cross. He proves to be Jesus' most faithful friend, and that's why he goes down as the disciple Jesus loved, the, the beloved disciple. It's the name he's gone down in history with. You might think, man, John must have been pretty awesome. John wasn't perfect, though, especially at the beginning. You know, that's what I love about Scripture, because for some Bible characters, we just get their highlights. Like, Elijah rolls up in the middle of the book of Kings, and, like, he's just challenging Ahab. We don't really know where he came from. I pay money to know, like, what, what did he come out of that he could come with that anointing and prophesy against kings? Or think about Enoch in Genesis. We just get, like, a sentence synopsis. It was so faithfully walked with God, God was like, yeah, you can skip the death thing. Just graduate to heaven. What does that look like? Not just to graduating to heaven, but walking that faithfully in friendship and relationship with God. So some of those things we don't know. But what I do love about Scripture, what I love about our Bibles, is that we get these stories of heroes. But oftentimes it comes with the warts, the failings. It comes with their stumblings. It comes with all that. Like Noah, sure, he saved humanity, but he got drunk off his own grapes. Abraham, right, he was the father of God's people, but you got some crazy stories where he basically denies his wife multiple times so that he could feel safe. It's just craziness. Moses delivers the Israelites from Egypt, yet he was a cold-blooded killer, and he murdered before that. King David, a man's after God's own heart, right? He committed adultery, murder, broke most of the Ten Commandments in about a matter of weeks with Bathsheba, killing his, her husband, all that. So again, we see, yeah, God truly is a friend of sinners. It's okay that you're not okay, but he works in us so we don't stay that way. And you see John that goes down as the disciple Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, and by the gospel accounts, he was Jesus' most faithful friend, but he was far from perfect. Matter of fact, at the beginning of Mark, I believe it's in chapter 3 when he lists the disciples, uh, John is listed with the nickname, not the disciple Jesus loved or the beloved disciple, but he and his brother were called the sons of thunder. That sounds cool, not going to lie, but that sounds more like a biker gang than it does like a church ministry. Now, maybe there are some men's group called the Sons of Thunder. That's pretty cool. They probably got a dope logo. But you think about thunder, it's unsettling. It's startling. Makes babies cry, right? It's in your face. Why would they have this nickname? Well, we see why in a story in Luke 9 where Jesus is traveling with the disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going through a Samaritan town, and they're looking for a place to stay. And he asks, and because of the racial tensions of that day between Samaritans and Jews, they basically said no and pushed back, like, no way. So John, John's like, Jesus, remember like Elijah in the Old Testament when he called down fire on the prophets of Baal? Let's do like our best Thor impersonation, call down lightning and fire, and just napalm these fools. And Je- I love Jesus. I would love to see his face when he's, no, right? One translation says, of course not. Like, what are you thinking, right? This was John, the son of thunder. Let's call down lightning and thunder and obliterate these people. You realize 
that's probably why I had the nickname. You see a, a little bit of the fervency and even anger that could be dubbed thunderous. And then you look at a story like in Mark 10, I believe it's, what is it, verses 35 through 37, where John and James, they come to Jesus and they're like, we know your kingdom's coming. And you'll be sitting on a throne. But you know what would be cool is if there wasn't one throne, but there was like three thrones. It would be like a nice symmetry if we could sit it, you know, if we could sit up there with you. And don't worry, we're humble enough. You can have the one in the center, but it would probably look dope if you had one on either side, right? You just realize it's, that's a little bit self-seeking and prideful. The early impressions of John that we get is that he's impatient, unloving, a little frightening, sometimes proud, self-seeking. And if we're honest, it's good news for us because I know there's weeks and there's days where some of that stuff rears itself up in me. But again, Jesus' relationship, his friendship with sinners, because every friendship he has in the Bible is with a sinner. It's good news for us because it shows us it's okay to not be okay, just not okay to stay that way. Like we've said before recently that, that Jesus... Right, he loves us enough to meet us where we're at, but he loves us enough not to leave us where we're at. He loves us enough to call us to transformation, and that happens through relationship with him, a life dedicated to following him. There was no Disney transformation for John where, like, Beauty and the Beast, he's, like, lifted up off the ground, and there's a spotlight from heaven, and then he gets dropped down, and he's completely changed and transformed. It wasn't like that wasn't like that. It was simply spending his life in friendship with Jesus. Dedicated, faithful following. Dedication is so often the key to transformation. Just don't quit. Keep following. Like that Eugene Peterson quote we quote so often, it's long obedience in the same direction. Keep following. It's not try harder. It's not work harder. It's constant dedication to Christ. There's a great quote. It's by Oswald Chambers. He says, the most important aspect of Christianity, it's not the work we do, but the relationship we maintain with God and the surrounding influence and qualities produced by that relationship. That is all God asks us to give our attention to, and it is the one thing that is continually under attack. Such a good quote just about our relationship. And, man, it should encourage us because just because you haven't seen a transformation that was like a, a flicking of a switch doesn't mean your faith isn't working. doesn't mean that God isn't at work in you. And it also means that you're not a prisoner to your past, nor are you a prisoner to your present and current issues because Jesus transforms. He changes us. How? Through the relationship we maintain through him. Might not happen at the flicking of a switch, but through our persistent, dedicated following him. Not, again, not even trying harder, but it's that relationship we maintain with him. It's all God asks us to give our attention to, and it is the one thing that is continually under attack. Because, again, in the Gospels, we see this son of thunder become Jesus' closest friend. And then this man, formerly known as the son of thunder, he would go on to write these letters that would earn him the nickname among some scholars and theologians, the apostle of love. Those two don't seem to mesh, right? Son of thunder and the apostle of love, right? It sounds like two completely different people. But he becomes defined by his later teachings on love. You read 1 John and he uses the word love some 40 times in five chapters. He says, love one another repeatedly. And again, I find hope in this stuff. I hope you do too, that the man who was a little rough around the edges, this son of thunder, becomes an apostle that goes down in history for his love. And what happened, not some Disney transformation that we might not have hope for, but being a faithful friend of Jesus, dedicated through and through, because that friendship with Jesus changes you. 
The love of Jesus, if you experience the love of Jesus consistently, it'll change your love for people, your love for God, so much so that this son of thunder becomes like the scholar of love. Like we talk about how it's so hard to understand, hard to grasp. John is like, I've seen it, I've walked in it, and let me share this love I have. God doesn't expect us to give anything he hasn't given us. Jesus says, hey, you'll forgive much because you've been forgiven much. Those that have received the most grace are usually the people that give it most freely. You look at what John says in his epistle. He says, we love because he loved us first. 1 John 4, 19. Then what I also love is that you look at John, God doesn't change how he created him or who John was. When John is writing these epistles, yeah, he's talking about love a lot. But when he starts talking about people that are deceitful and false teachers, the thunder comes out a little bit. You read those passages. This was still the passionate John that, that took charge in situations and wanted to correct and he was passionate that didn't change it's just that it was a thunder harnessed by God's love through himself for others he no longer carried a hammer like Thor right ready to call down lightning and thunder on people he carried God's love in his heart and it informed everything he did so how does John's friendship with Christ inform our friendships and our love and I want to just look at again two friendships our our friendship with Jesus our friendship with God and then the friendships we're called to have in the body of Christ so first, let's look at the, the, our friendship with God, but just to ask you guys, um, what is, they've studied this, what do you think is the most important factor for creating good friends of any type? What's the most important factor, like the most important factor for creating good friendships? Trust, forgiveness, kindness, communication, common interest, spending time. Being present, those last two kind of tie together. Spending time, being present, knowing more about each other. Yep, absolutely, familiarity. But spending time, being present, you might be surprised to learn that the greatest predictor of close friendships, it's not shared values, it's not having the same personality, it's just basically geographic proximity. Spending time together, you're put together in a place, you spend more and more time together, you just begin to like each other. Sometimes. Doesn't always happen, right? Maybe it's just a percentage. But they found the greatest predictor of close friendships is simply time spent together, present together with one another. The the people you spend the most time with are usually the people you become friends with. So the question I would ask you right now is how often do you spend time with God? How much do you fight for the time you spend with God? Because we'd all be familiar with this thought, like, yeah, you need to prioritize your time. You need to let God be the center and and just let it flow from there. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. He says, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Now, this phrase, making the most of every opportunity, it's also translated in many translations as redeeming the time or even in other translations, buying the time. And buying is appropriate because if you're going to make time for God, there's a cost. In business, this is what you would call an opportunity cost. To take advantage of the opportunity to be with God, you by necessity have to give something up. This is the opportunity cost. It was David, King David, that said, I think it's 1 Samuel, uh, what is it, 24, where he says, I will not offer the Lord something that costs me nothing. This perspective is why he goes down in history as a man that was after God's own heart. And it says that in in Acts, I believe it's, what is it, chapter 13, verse 22. And in the message version, it says, he's a man whose heart beats to my heart. 
I love that word play. I love the imagery. Because in the days of Jesus and John, if we go back to their friendship, in that culture, if you were at a meal, you would sit next to your most trustworthy friend, your most faithful friend, which is how we see it play out at the Last Supper. That way, if your friend had something private to say to you, you would lean over so that your head was on their chest and in front of their ear so that others couldn't read their lips. You had privacy, you had confidentiality in that way. You even see at the Last Supper, John leans over to ask Jesus a question. What's powerful is when you would lean over in that way, you wouldn't just hear their voice, but if your head is laying on their chest, you'd hear their heart. You'd hear their heartbeat. As a close friend, you'd hear their heart literally in their chest and figuratively through their voice and what they're sharing from their heart. And not literally, but figuratively, you'd gradually become this man whose heart beats to their heart. And when it comes to my friendship with Jesus, man, I want that on my tombstone, right? David goes down as a man who is after Jesus' heart, a man whose heart beats to God's heart. Like, that's a powerful testimony. But what am I giving up to spend time with him? Because to fail to plan is to plan to fail. You probably heard that said before. And you might say, well, I do it here and there. I, I do it when I can, but usually that's code for I don't do it as much as I like because I don't plan for it and prioritize it. You know, for many people, many of us, if we treated our marriage with the level of priority and intentionality that we treat our relationship with God, our marriage would fail in no time. Because marriage is it takes time spent together. It's amazing what, what just having a faithful date night will do for your marriage, right? Just having time that you spend together, time to be present and connect in conversation. It's powerful. It's just as powerful to make sure you're spending time with God. Why do we imagine it's any different in our friendship and relationship with God? So make time, make plans, buy the time, invest, and become a man or a woman whose heart beats to his heart. That is such a powerful testimony. And may it be my testimony and your testimony in our relationship with God, in our friendship with Jesus. But then secondly, looking at friendships within the church, you know, the course of our culture is usually I'll follow Christ, I'll worship God, but don't bother me with organized religion. Don't bother me with going to church and being a part of a church. And it's the result of this disembodied lifestyle in the digital age where we have friends we never see face to face. The Christian life, though, is that of a body. Both as this analogy and picture and metaphor that Paul gives us because he too realizes pictures and metaphors, we grasp it. But also as flesh and blood, bodies literally coming together in worship. But we live in a generation now that makes more text messages than phone calls. Not only do we, we fade from face-to-face -face interaction, we don't even want voice-to-voice -voice anymore because when we text, we can edit, we can polish before we ever hit send. We make more texts than phone calls now. We avoid eye contact and face-to-face -face conversation. So, of course, we'll shrink back from the face-to-face -face relationship and heart-to-heart -heart relationship in the body of Christ. See, our technology, it enables us to connect from a distance, but it also enables a distance in your friendships. And God wants to redeem authentic friendship and connection first with him, but also with those people we're called to do life with in the body of Christ, this family of faith. And, man, if you just have one takeaway for your relationships, like it was said here, be present. Take the time. Buy the time. It says in Hebrews 10.25, let us not neglect our meeting together. The Bible makes it clear that we have to prioritize being present, flesh and blood, face-to-face, heart-to-heart interaction. Why? It imitates it imitates God in two really big ways. First, the Trinity, right? The three members of the Godhead, one in relationship through all eternity. But then secondly, we see Jesus Christ in the incarnation. He takes on flesh to be present with us. 
God didn't send a text message, didn't send an email or a, a supernatural carrier pigeon to send us his love. No, he, he sent his son in flesh and blood. So he could have face-to-face, heart-to-heart interactions. He's known as Emmanuel, God with us, fully present. He was present. We too should be present. And if we find it too messy or too risky or too painful to engage with incarnate flesh and blood people, what does that say about us as followers and friends of Jesus Christ who took on flesh to save messy people? How can we avoid friendship out of fear that it it might might be messy? Because, man, friendship is hard. It's not always easy. But an independent, private relationship with God is ultimately a stunted friendship with God because our faith said it a million times here at City Life over, really, Fred says it all the time too, it should be personal but never private. It's deeply personal but not private. The church is an interdependent, not independent, interdependent group of believers whose need for each other is often greater than we realize. If you're one of those people with hundreds of Facebook friends, but you say, man, I only got two, fr- two like deep friends. I don't have any deep relationships where people can hold me accountable and encourage me when I need encouragement. I can just share my heart and know that they're not going to judge me. They're just going to let me vent. If you don't have any of those people, let me encourage you. The best present you can give yourself is be present. Get to life groups, outreaches, playing get to church, right? I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here. But <laughs> afterwards, stay and talk. Invite somebody to dinner. Don't even have to be that night you got plans. Invite them to coffee that next week. There's so much we try to do over a keyboard that it just can't hold the weight. Come sit before a table with somebody face-to-face, make eye contact, do life with them. And, again, friendship is, is sometimes hard, but it's simple. The, the greatest predictor of good friendships and, and the greatest quality in those is simply time. Invest time. Be present. But a... I guess a warning, a call to friendship in a Facebook world is not a call to uh, pour out the details of your life here, there, and everywhere. A good baseline is you get rooted and pursue friendship in the Facebook world. I heard Beth Moore say once, be authentic with all, be transparent with most, be intimate with some. But you need people in your life that you have intimate friendships with, where when you throw up a filter, you try to say, it's all good, they can see right through that filter. When you show up at church and they're like, how you doing? You give the church, I'm blessed, brother, or I'm good, right? Just the simple, I'm good. They can see right through it because they know you. And they've got relationship with you. They can read you. But if I could have the worship team come up, there's a theme in classical literature and, and classical relationships where, where, where friendships, they don't just stand the test of time, but friendships... True, good, deep friendships, the ones they model in classic literature, they, they outlast death. Where the, the good friend that lives on, for instance, he might stay on the battlefield to prevent the enemy from taking his beloved friend's body or his armor. But I love that Jesus, once again, he flips the script and he changes the direction. Because after his death, he's the one who comes back and visits his friend John multiple times. First he appeared to John and the disciples after his resurrection and many others, but We know from history that John was the one disciple to, as we know, escape martyrdom, as far as we know. Historians say he probably lived into his hundreds. And at one point, John was boiled alive. They tried to kill him, but one, he didn't denounce Christ, and two, he didn't die. So after that, they put him on this island called Patmos, right, this rugged, barren place in the middle of the sea. If you've ever seen Moana, he was basically Maui, out there stranded on an island, right? But Jesus... Again, transcends death, 
comes back to encourage him and reveals to him this book of Revelation that we have in our Bibles. And I love that Jesus' friendship, it didn't just outlast death, it transcended it. As we celebrate at Easter, he beat death. He even came back to sow back into his friendships like the one he had with John. And maybe that's why no matter what was done to John, he never denounced Christ and he could not stop talking about Jesus' love. Just couldn't stop. And he kept sharing the gospel. He kept sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because this is the gospel. But as we talked about with the potter and the clay, God created us in his image. And yes, sin has broken us. It's vandalized that image. But, right, Jesus came. He came. And from the moment that he began his ministry and he began to make the unclean clean, all the way through the beating of the grave and the beating of death that John witnessed at Easter where he saw the empty tomb. Eventually he saw the risen Savior. All throughout that, Jesus was reversing the effects of the fall. He was redeeming us by his blood at the cross, the cross that's at the center of the gospel and the good news. But the ensuing empty grave, again, that we celebrate at Easter that's upcoming, it shows that our friendship with Christ transcends death, and it gives us eternity. But so often people stop there when they break down the gospel. Yeah, God created us in his image. Sin broke us. Jesus paved the way through his blood to re-enter into relationship. But we have to stress that the fourth part is, is response. Do you respond? Do you answer his call when he says to us, like he says to John, follow me? Enter into close relationship, a friendship where you'll become more and more like me, but you might be asked to let go of more and more in your life. What it, what's your response? Because again and again in his ministry, Jesus takes this moment of response a person might have as a determining factor of whether they be with him in his kingdom. And it's so easy in the moment we have our response with our mouth, but man, our heart's response, it's proven over time with how we spend our time. And if we want friendship, relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the most evident ways you'll see it is, man, what's your, how are you spending your time? That's not to shame anybody, because I know I could do better with it daily. But Jesus doesn't want to be a, a quote-unquote Facebook friend connected at a distance. He wants to spend intimate friendship and relationship with us, affecting, speaking to, showing power over every moment. So if we could stand we're going to go back into worship. Chris is going to lead us in worship. But can we take this moment in worship and say, God, I, I, I buy this moment, as Paul talked about in Ephesians, and I give it back to you. God, we take this moment, and God, we want it to symbolize our lives and, and the rest of our lives and the rest of the time we have. And we want to offer it up to you in worship. God, one day we'll be before you in heaven. We'll be worshiping you. But, God, we want to worship you with our lives here. God, we want to worship you in such a way, spend time with you and have a relationship with you in such a way that people would look at us and be like, those are little Jesus Christs. Those are Christians. Like when the religious leaders saw the disciples, man, they, they were unlearned, but they could, they could just tell that they had spent time with Jesus. I just pray that for us, our, as we go about our workplace, as we go about in conversation and relationship, God, that people would see us and see what we have to say and see our lives and be like, man, those people, they must know Jesus. And God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to share your love, that we'd be like John, that as we, as we spend lives in relationship with you, God, that we wouldn't be able to stop speaking of your love. Again, he drops the word love 40 times in five chapters. That's eight times per chapter. Help us to find eight times per day to talk about your love with somebody, Lord God. God, just stir our hearts, God, as we step into Easter, as we move into this season, don't let it be just 
another Easter. Help us to reflect on what you did and what it means. And God, that even as we worshiped and we sang the song, do it again, that as we reflect on the grave and the fact that you beat death, God, those things in our lives that seem too big and insurmountable, you can do it again. You can beat death. You can help us through all those. And we remember that the power that raised you from the grave, it's in us, Lord God. But God, we in this moment, God, we say we wanna be friends in relationship with you as our savior, as our king, and God, we take this time and we worship you. We worship you, Jesus, for what you've done.